0: What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All of the Above, Podcast Extra. My name is Manuel Reston, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher, and as you know, we like to drop these Passing Period episodes in between our full episodes. Our full episodes are chock full of dope headlines and super dope guests, and our most recent full episode featured Dr. Charlie Kemp, and we explored equity issues around out-of-school and extracurricular educational programming in That was a great episode. If you missed it, definitely uh, you want to go back and check that out. And our next full episode next week features an incredible educator that we have had on the show before, Lorena Herman of uh, Multicultural Classroom and Educolor and a bunch of things. And um, she is a super dope educator and advocate who lives in Florida. And we're going to have her back on the show for our 100th full episode to discuss all things around these attacks on education, particularly from the perspective of somebody who works and serves inside of the state of Florida, where so much of of this current quote unquote culture war stuff is um, really being championed the loudest. So we're definitely looking forward to that conversation with her about what the experience is like as an educator, working uh, within and, um, amidst all that all that wildness and you know definitely tune in for that it's gonna be our 100th full episode so next week on all video platforms and podcast streaming platforms and all that good stuff anyways i'm here with jeff jeff passing period these in-between joints that you know just featured discussion of me between me and you talking about headlines and and things that we might have missed on our most recent full episode how are you doing this week for this passing period well, Manuel, this passing period, which
1: happens to also be our 93rd passing period. So, for anybody out there okay. who's like, I swear these dudes got more than 100 episodes, yes, we do. We we actually have now <laughs> 193, in fact. Um, but, uh, you know, our full episodes are certainly a much more uh, robust production, you might say, in. in literally every sense of the word, <laughs> a lot more work uh, goes into producing those all around. And so um, so these are, you know, what, what we do just to keep the conversation going um, in the meanwhile. And um, uh, I, I'm doing well, Manuel. I am um, still on sabbatical for the moment, but it's coming to a okay. rapid, rapid close and i' I'm, I'm feeling the uh <laughs> I'm feeling the presence uh, of work coming uh coming back my way
0: yeah that's the that's that feeling that teachers get every uh summer vacation towards the end <laughs> where it's like I'm still technically on break, but yeah. I'm starting to have dreams and sometimes yeah. nightmares about the first day of school <laughs> and you know me not having anything prepared and all that and that the yeah that that um anxiety starts to creep in a bit towards the end of summer so. Welcome back to that feeling, Jeff. Welcome back to that yeah, feeling.
1: Yeah, thank you. I got I got a couple okay. weeks, couple weeks to go, and uh, I'm gonna, you know, enjoy it. But also, I'm like, dang it, man, I gotta <laughs> gotta get ready for real life again. Um, but funny yeah. that uh, that we should talk about that, Manuel, because as folks know, my real life of work um, primarily uh, centers around the Los Angeles Unified School District which uh, has been in all of the education headlines this week because there was a massive uh, labor action, Uh, a three-day strike um, led initially by SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, which, uh, which here represents the, I'm pretty sure it's the vast majority, but I guess technically I'm not, 100% 100% sure about that, so put put an asterisk next to that, but I'm pretty sure it's the vast majority of the classified staff members, uh, 30,000 employees throughout the district, so I'm pretty sure there's not another bargaining unit other than UTLA that's bigger than that, but um, suffice it to say, it's a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of important work for the school system that is frankly often uh, just undervalued economically. And so this includes uh, custodians or plant managers, as they're called here, uh, cafeteria workers, you know, folks in uh, food service, T- uh, TAs, teacher aides, special ed assistants, bus drivers, uh, you know, the, all those sorts of positions. Right, the the many jobs that exist that actually help school function each and every day, apart from. You know, obviously the teachers who are teaching class and like administrators who are, you know, administering school. So they went on strike uh, because, and this is a crude oversimplification, but uh, effectively they've been working without a contract for quite a while. They have been demanding a significant raise because LA is a ridiculously expensive city city to live in, and they um, were not getting, you know. Uh, in their eyes, good faith uh, bargaining from the district. and so this strike was essentially a you know a show of power to say, hey, like we you know we matter and you can't run schools without us and <laughs> like we can't afford to live here uh, and need a raise. And they are right on all of those fronts, uh, frankly, and I, I don't even think that's like a particularly political thing to say. It's kind of just the truth. Uh, so what also, of course, um, dramatically expanded the uh, newsworthiness and the um, the effect of this strike is that UTLA, uh, United Teachers Los Angeles, the teachers union here, went out on strike with SEIU in solidarity. And so you definitely can't run school like you can't even run school the way they tried to when... Um, you know, when the teachers went on strike and it was people like me in an auditorium with, like, 75 elementary school kids... Right, right. ...trying to, you know, provide some sort of education for them. Um, you know, and obviously just crazy circumstances. But, uh, you you know, you can't do that with essentially all of the workers except the administrators at a school out. And, uh, and so... The district closed school uh, for those three days. You know, they did do things like provide meal service and stuff like that. But um, but uh, it was announced, uh, perhaps most importantly, uh, on Friday that, uh, you know, at the conclusion of, of the strike, um, the union and the district reached an agreement. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not uh, currently speaking to, you know, folks on the ground from SEIU to like hear what the word on the street is about this, since I'm kind of uh, you know on sabbatical at the moment. But um, it included some very important wins. Uh, so roughly a 30% wage increase, a $1,000 bonus for all workers uh, who were with the district dating back to the 2020-21 start of the pandemic school year, uh, or you know peak of the pandemic school year. Uh, Retroactive pay of four thousand to eight thousand, depending on job classification. Uh, an increase in average salary from twenty-five thousand to thirty-three thousand, and a growth in the minimum work day um, for special education assistants who often had shorter workdays or um, you know not full-time schedules. So they now get a guaranteed seven hours um, of work uh, in, in those positions. There's of course many other you know details to it, but those are some of the big highlights here. And um, to me, the most striking thing that stands out is the increase in average salary from twenty-five thousand to thirty-three thousand. Now, um, I think this is probably true everywhere in the United States, Manuel. There might be some like you know really low cost rural environment where this is not the case I don't know but I honestly I don't think so where $25,000 today is a living wage for anyone in this country like is there anywhere in America where making $25,000 a year allows you to live in anything other than some version of poverty I'm not aware of that I've, I've been a city dweller for you know, I used to live in New York and now I live in L.A. So I'm my, my perspective could be skewed. But I'm like, hey, there's I've lived in a couple small towns, too, and you can't make it on, <laughs> you know, uh, when I was a college admissions officer, I was making in the low 30s and I had roommates. OK, <laughs> like in, in rural New Hampshire. So like and that was 20 years ago. So like I can't imagine how people like you can't survive without extenuating circumstances, right? Multi-generational households, um, you know, public assistance, uh, you know, uh, having, you know, multiple roommates and, you know, sharing a one bedroom. Like these are the things you gotta do if you're gonna be able to live in any kind of way in LA on that salary. Bumping that up to 33,000 is big. And also it still leaves you like really struggling. Uh, in many ways. And so it's better. It's an important win. I am I think, you know, pay the workers. They do critical work. But it's also like, Im- imagine a 30% increase in your salary that then gets you to $33,000 a year. And you still have to live in a city where one bedroom apartments routinely go for $3,000 a month.
0: So yeah, it's really wild. And Yeah, no, um, you're right. And the numbers are really stark and really wild. And, you know, I don't teach in Los Angeles Unified. So, you know, I'm in a separate district and we um, we didn't have a strike this week. And and I'm not on the on the ground talking to to um, SEIU employees in Los Angeles. But I do know a lot of folks, a lot of good teachers in L.A. Unified. And I met with some last night, actually, and talking about um, what was going on and everything. And it's just just mind boggling when you see the numbers. You know, the L.A. Times did a profile on. Some of these uh, school employees and how much they earn. And one stood out to be um, who's a, a food service worker who's been with the district for 16 years, 16 years, 48 uh, year old service worker, uh, Margarita Gasco was her name. And $16.91 um, an hour is what she was making $16.91 an hour been with the district for 16 years. And it's limited to just six and a half hours a day because the district wasn't offering uh, any more hours for her. And she, you know, in this profile was talking about how um, even though like they can't work more than that many hours, like there's more work to be done than what they could do in the six and a half hours as a food service employee. um, You know, she said something about like, you know, we don't have enough hours. So we got to hustle because we got to feed the kids. And it's just wild that like six and a half hours for $16 and 91 cents an hour in Los Angeles for a district you've been working with for 16 years is just, it's just mind boggling to me. Like I have students who work fast food jobs and like depending on which fast food job they have, some of them are close to that or at that amount. So it's just wild that any school employee would be limited to 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 that amount of compensation in a city that's as expensive as Los Angeles is. And watching the local news and you know the local news is not known for being critical or or really on the side of the people very often. So yeah, I was watching the local news coverage of the strike because clearly I think a lot of folks would be like, Well, you know, what about what about uh what are all the the families gonna do if their, you know, schools are shut down, where they go send their kids this and that. So I was interested in how the local news would be reporting on it. And, you know, they were giving out some numbers about what the average, you know, the, the average that you just point out, 25000 a year. And, and and then they said, like, but then we looked at SEIU union documents for ourselves. And I was expecting them to have some like, oh, you know, that number is not really real. It's not, you know, it's not that bad, this and that. But the local news was like, we looked at the numbers ourselves. And it's actually worse than it's reported. Uh, someone coming in, on, coming in on the low scale, and I don't remember the exact number. But, you know, they put that number up and they said, even if this person was allowed to work Full full time. let give them f- full forty hours a week. That still would only amount to this much, and and they compared it to how much it costs to live in Los Angeles, and basically like poverty wages, poverty wages. So even the local news was like, "Yo, this is wild! Like, what? How the how the hell does anyone expect these folks to be able to live for that for that small amount?" So definitely pleased that that the teachers union in this case stood with them, and definitely pleased to see that that action did did um, result in at least a tentative agreement that, I, I don't know, the, the LAUSD teachers that I was around last night talking to about it, they, one in particular, sounded very happy with, with that um, tentative agreement in terms of the numbers and in, in what's there. So my initial impression is that it's, um, it's a win for the union. Um, and obviously, even with that, like you just pointed out, Jeff, even with that increase, especially when you consider inflation, um, I, I still can't see how anyone, around that that income could really afford to live comfortably in Los Angeles so definitely more work to be done for sure and it's just uh just I don't know it's just wild to me that we live in a city where like you could just like you know just on the drive to work I pass so many multi-million dollar mansions on the hillsides and there's just so much wealth right in your face there's a, a airport not far from where I live um One of them, you know, smaller joints for where all the little private planes um, come and go. And a lot of the celebrities that live out in Calabasas and elsewhere, this is the airport that they fly into. So I routinely could look up in the sky and see these private jets like soaring across Los Angeles. And there's just so much wealth right in your face. When you think about something as fundamental as education, as fundamental as making sure our, our kids have... Safe transportation to school, have uh, nutritious food so that they could um, be well nourished to, for their learning and have clean classrooms and all these basics. Like, it's just mind boggling that we have to fight this way in the first place in a city where the wealth is just so stark and so in your face. Like, how is anybody out there as a food service employee for 16 years only making $16 an hour in this city? It's just wild. Yeah. So, Shout out to everybody that stood out there in the rain. Shout out to everybody that was part of this and everybody who fought the good fight. And uh, obviously the fight continues, but wow, just yeah. wow. Yeah, one, one other quick
1: thing about it, man. Well, uh, you know, of course the, uh, the, the drum has been beating about uh, learning loss and oh, there's already so much learning loss. This is gonna exacerbate learning loss and therefore the educators are lazy and they hate children and whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm not buying into it even slightly, okay? I will stipulate that losing three days of instruction and three days of school services is not good for children, <laughs> okay? Like, agreed, okay? And I'm not hearing any of that, Manuel, because, and I, I don't have data on this, what I'm going off of is my uh, experience, which obviously could be skewed, but I, I have seen and worked with enough schools in this district, Manuel, to feel like I'm speaking pretty, pretty confidently about this, that, we have to ask, who are these employees, right? Like in our city, who are they, right, in relation to the school district? Yes, they're employees, but most of them are also parents of our students, okay? They're also, Absolutely. in many, many cases, the vast majority, people who live in the very communities that our schools serve, okay? And so we are talking about a school system that is built besieged, by the ripple effects of oppressive poverty, paying the parents of our children poverty wages, right? <laughs> okay, like, I'm not here for the conversation about learning loss if what we're doing is saying like, oh, to, to prevent three days of learning loss, we have to enshrine poverty wages for our kids' parents. Right. Like, paying our kids, yep. poverty is the most destructive thing in education (laughs) okay like it is the most corrosive thing to a child's ability to be ready to come to school and be in a good place to learn so frankly these three days I don't know what kind of psychometrician out there could do some analysis but I'd be curious a couple of years from now to see like what are the measurable effects they could come up with of raising a kid's parents salary by 30% Right. Versus the quote unquote measurable effects of learning loss that they could come up with based on these lost three days of instruction. So there's an argument to be made that what the unions did in this case was a vastly more impactful investment in the education of our students by providing food stability, housing stability, you know, uh access greater access to health care, health insurance. That was one of the provisions in this bill. So even part-time classified staff now get health care for themselves and their dependents, right? So like think about the positive benefit that that's gonna have on kids. Okay? And so that I think to me that's the lens on this that we need to be thinking about.
0: Yeah. No, uh, that's you are correct. You are correct. And so many, so many of those critics who are out there you know, talking about how dare they n- shut down the schools for three days? This, that, whatever, whatever. Like, I didn't hear them acknowledge the fact that these thousands and thousands of, of folks who are out there on strike are parents of so many thousands and thousands and thousands of students in the school system. Um, absolutely, yeah. It's yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm I'm certainly certainly like I said before, very happy to see that the two unions got together. I think that's pretty rare. Um, I can't think of a time where I've seen a teachers union and a school employees union uh, get together at the same time to go on strike. So shout out to all the, all the folks at uh, UTLA who, who were part of getting teachers out there uh, to show that solidarity. I mean, I think that's critically important. And, in any case, you know, I'm I'm over here thinking like, hell, even if they didn't do that, like the schools would have had to shut down anyways. Like, how are you going to operate a school with, you know, no cafeteria employees, no uh, bus drivers, no custodians, all that. So um, either way, yeah, very, very happy to have seen that. I think those images were beautiful. I know there is a right wing uh, criticism about teachers out there in the rain dancing and such while the kids were stuck at home, not able to learn this, that, whatever. But it's like. Get out of here, man. Get out of here. And clearly, I mean a deal was struck. So clearly, taking to the streets was uh, what was needed to get this thing done because uh the district was was half stepping as you could say, and um suddenly, suddenly after these three days of action, um suddenly they were able to to reach an agreement um and meet the uh the the demands of, of the union. So yeah, shout out to them. And I also saw images of like the the superintendent, like I'm not here to like Talk about a superintendent in another district that, you know, I don't work under or whatever, because I I, I don't know. I'm sure it's a tough job being a superintendent of LAUSD and all that stuff. But he is on Twitter a lot. He does tweet a whole lot. And um, I saw a lot of folks responding and blowing up his tweets during this uh, during these three days, highlighting the fact that he earns like, what is it, $440,000? 400 something thousand and uh, I believe he is paid higher than the president of the United States so it's like yeah he was out there for the photo ops I saw him in his nice suit a uh, nice uh, business suit and tie uh, handing out lunches um, to cars that were pulling up and it's just like dude get out of here man like I, I don't know like policy wise I have no opinion on him because I haven't been following LAUSD policy that closely but I just know the optics were not good the optics were not good this um this person making all this money out there in his nice ass suit acting like he's doing the hard work of like feeding the kids like get out of here man you know
1: you know what i so would say that. on that man well uh two things first of yep. all he has an incredibly difficult job i don't think if you paid me a million i'm sure i don't think if you paid me a million dollars i would do that job in, in, now that that is objectively kind of a ridiculous statement to make, but also honestly, I, I mean that like his job is incredibly hard, and uh, he's also incredibly easy to be the punching bag for everything that sucks in education, right? Or in, in the he local, makes it easy too, though. Content, he also right? makes it
0: easy. Yeah.
1: I mean, so you know what? I, all I want to say is, dude has an incredibly difficult job. In any negotiation, there are two parties, right? And to get to a thirty percent raise and you know a bunch of the really good things that came out of this, also takes a willing, you know, participant on that side. And um, so I am, uh, I am happy that this uh, agreement came into place. You know, I do think it took a strike, right? Like the workers had to show uh, their strength. And uh, it probably wouldn't have happened, or certainly wouldn't have happened on this timeline, without that type of move. Um, but it also does take someone who's like you know willing to concede at a point, right? And um, so, you know, I think in in this context, it's easy to criticize uh, the superintendent, um, and much of that criticism maybe you know maybe warranted. But also, um, you know, we got to a good we got to a good place here.
0: Yeah. We did get to a good place, and he also makes it very easy to um, to be the punching bag because, again, I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, but um, he be tweeting a lot, man, and he's a big-time learning loss, learning loss, and these teachers, this type of person, and I just don't think that's uh, what was needed for, well, for any of us returning back from um, the last couple of years of just everything that has happened, but all right, for sure, for sure. It was a nice suit, though. I ain't gonna lie. He does have style. (laughs) He does
1: have style. I got got to give him that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And it was all raining and everything, and everybody else is in ponchos, and it's just him in the suit. It's like, I could tell. I was like, he wanted people to see this nice suit, because, yeah, he wasn't covering it Okay, but but
1: but. come on now. If the guy shows up for a photo op and doesn't have a suit on, he's kind of in an Obama tan suit conundrum there, right? Like, people will be like, look at his fancy suit, or people will be like, look at him in khakis. He's so unprofessional. He doesn't care. Like, the. He's in a tight spot. I don't in think a lot people ways, would. Man.
0: All right, man. All right, I'll let you carry his water, Jeff, <laughs> Mister <Mr>., uh, <laughs> Super Duper Principal Man. Obviously, obviously uh, has a side with the district admin. Listen, I have I, I you, have man.
1: empathy for the challenges of his job. I do absolutely.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Cool, man. Well, again, uh, congrats to everybody. And that was a rainy that was a rainy three days. It was raining and hailing and stuff like that. And now the sun is out. It's a nice, beautiful, bright Saturday out here in Los Angeles, um, which is great, which is great. So um, so Jeff, we do have another story that, that we want to touch on. And um, before we get to that, actually, I would like to share that my week in the classroom was, was um, kind of a rough week. And uh, just a shout out to all the veteran teachers out there, because this was one of those weeks where I realized even 19 years in, like still things happen that I'm like, that have never happened before and that I'm not like prepared for like so like I had a particular interaction with a student this week that was like wow this has never happened in my 19 years and it's just a reminder of just how complex the job is and it wasn't anything like really really bad but it was something that like had me like damn like this is this is tough work and then you know I went home and then my UCLA Bruins got knocked out the tournament and heartbreaking fashion truly heartbreaking fashion <laughs> so it was just like yeah. one of those things was just like man it's rainy like this thing had school happen which is like just, just sucks and then like my team got knocked out and then friday was a uh, all-staff pd day which normally i just hate pd days i think most teachers do um or many teachers do, too many teachers do, because, um, you know, that says something about the quality of PD that we tend to re- receive. So, you know, Friday, I'm just like, man, I'm going to sit through this PD all day. But the PD was actually really, really good. Um, so shout out to everybody at my school site that had um, had a role in putting it together. It was probably some of the best, like, staff PD that, that I've had in, in a while. It was just really rejuvenating. Got to um, have some great conversations with colleagues. And it, was, it really uh, lifted my spirit in a way. And then um, got to meet nice. some... Yeah, yeah. It was actually, yeah, it was, you know, really, really solid. And then after that, went to happy hour. I haven't been to happy hour in a very long time. And I got to meet some folks from um, Ed Trust West uh, from the Educator Advisory Council. You know, we've been meeting virtually for like years now. So it's like first time seeing each other in person in a very long time and uh you know that was really really dope so it was you know it was one of those one of those weeks that just reminds me that of the ups and downs of being in education of like the hard hard work that happens but then also um just the really great people and this just super dope folks that that are part of this trying to make this a better more humanizing school system for everybody so so i was like all right cool and then we could come in we could have this passing period we could talk about the success of the strike and this new tentative agreement and like you know all good you know rainbows and 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 you know sunny skies and all that good stuff and then it's like oh wait wait we got this one more story to talk about and it's like oh yeah there's that too oh yeah there's like this incredibly dangerous incredibly frustrating and um just like not good element of the world of education right now uh so we'll talk about it a little bit now jeff talk to us this is um texas this time it's texas
1: Texas, yes. So a couple, couple um, preliminary thoughts at the beginning, Manuel. I, w- I was having a conversation with someone the other day about our show. And they were, they made, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically made a point about like, you know, there's, there's so much crazy stuff happening in education. And like, does it get, you know, demoralizing or like, you know, difficult to do this show and talk about these things. And you know, on the one hand, sometimes it does. Like sometimes I got to get off social media and not watch the news and, you know, uh, and just be human. Um, and also, I feel like one of the important roles that our show can play is like speaking truth uh, in the in whatever small corner of the media sphere that we occupy and. Um, Which is important generally, but also important because we live in California, you know, which is, quote unquote, a liberal haven or whatever. Um, And, you know, we are not immediately affected by... The crazy things happening in places like Florida, which we'll talk about with our guests uh, next week, folks. Mark your mark your calendars. That episode is going to be it's it's going to be amazing, um, you know, uh, to speak to a Florida educator who's doing the good work about, you know, what's happening uh, to her and, and folks like her. Um, and, you know, in today's case, Texas. But there's also, you know, around, you know, a dozen to two dozen states in the country where where there are similarly repressive things happening every day uh, with regard to schools. And um, I think it's important for us to continue to speak about these things and document these things uh, because it's like the injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere concept, right? That like... We would be remiss to sit in our relative privilege in this regard and and just be like, well, we got ethnic studies as a requirement coming out over here, you know. <laughs> so whatever, if Texas wants to yeah. whitewash history and, you know, erase gay people from existence or whatever, like, oh, well. We're gonna be fine here in California, so I I think that's how I think of it. Is like this is part of our job to like stand in solidarity on these on these issues. In as much as you know, a podcast stands in solidarity, but um, but this is what we're trying to do, at least at least in my mind. And with that said, Texas, you know, when we're talking education in Texas, it's probably a hot mess. Let's just let's just keep it real, and uh, today is no exception. So. Uh, this past week um, in Texas, a, an important piece of legislation, Senate Bill 8, which um, has the veneer of being a parental rights bill, but has the substance of being a bill that is attempting to do a lot of really subversive things. Uh, was passed by this or introduced in the state Senate. It's expected, as far as I can tell, to pass the Senate. Um, The lieutenant governor in Texas has made it a big priority. And that uh, he actually, you know, is essentially the president of the of the Senate. Uh, And then Greg Abbott, the governor, is a complete nutcase. And, you know, he's going to support this. And the Texas House is largely full of gerrymandered right wing lunatics so, you know, it's likely to become law or at least some problematic version of it is likely to become law there. Um, and this is following in the footsteps of the you know, the insidious work of folks like Ron DeSantis in Florida. Uh, but there are bills like this. We've all heard about the drag queens in Tennessee, you know, um, we've heard about the you know creating hotlines to turn in your teachers for saying subversive things in places like virginia and ohio and new hampshire you know this this is the just another step forward in this march across the country but in texas um this uh this this legislation senate bill 8 dubbed the texas parental bill of rights uh, by its republican authors would give parents who want to pull their children out of public school a year to cover homeschooling expenses or private school tuition. Um, So, you know, that is deeply problematic in all kinds of ways we're going to talk about. Um, It also uh, grants some potentially very disturbing new powers to parents around um, oversight of what students are taught, what books they could access, and um, to much to the chagrin of many of our. LGBT, um, you know, friends and and neighbors, uh, and of course the the organizers, um, it essentially allows parents to opt their children out of conversations about gender and sexuality, will have a chilling effect on curriculum that we're seeing, you know, from the major curriculum developers across the country, um, to just not talk about the existence of LGBTQ peoples. Um, And to prevent the discourse, educational discourse uh, about them as even existing in history or in other spaces uh, in the curriculum. And so these are just a few of the things that are, you know, that are coming up in this bill. But it is, um, you know, I think it's fair to say, Manuel, like it's a it's a bit of a right wing fascist, uh, (laughs) you know, wet dream. Uh, Pardon my crude language there. Um, but but it's all kinds of stuff that they want um, cloaked in the idea of parental rights, parental choice. Par, you know, it's literally a parental bill of rights to oppress others and undermine public education. So this is what we got going on in Texas, man. Um, yeah, you know, it's whack. But uh, <laughs> what do you want to say about it, man? Well,
0: I mean, I just think it it's important for everybody just to be clear and aware of sort of like the the progression and sort of some of the pivoting, um, around, you know, what started, you know, a couple of years ago in terms of like really clear and explicit, like anti-CRT, um, talk or whatever, and then pivoting towards, um, LGBTQ issues. And then not, I shouldn't say pivoting, but then like, you know, looping that in. And then now this, this greater emphasis on so-called parental rights and parental choice. Um, and these bills that we see, I think, you know, above and beyond Texas that are looking to take taxpayer money and allow parents to, um, you know, enroll their kids at private schools and, and you know, and all, all this other stuff and essentially defund the public school system um, as we know it. So, you know, I think that that's a very important um, thread to connect between these various bills that we talked about over the last several years that ultimately, ultimately the, the aim of all this is to Get to a place where the public school system um, is dismantled and ceases to exist, and taxpayer funds could be used for private schools and parochial schools, and um, and that's and that's a wrap. So the the very important and just critically important institution of public schooling and the the undeniable right for every young child to have access to a free and quality education, like that, is what ultimately is under attack as a whole. And this bill is just like the next step in that and cloaking it in this idea of parental rights is just so predictable, like so predictable that like, oh, you know, it's about parents, you know, obviously, obviously, a parent should have um, the right to be involved in their kids education. It's like, you know, you can't really argue against just that as far as like, Fundamentally, like, obviously, if I'm a parent, like, I should have a right to, like, you know, be involved in my kid's education does my kid but like to use that as sort of the the cloaking mechanism of these really nefarious um, moves to dismantle the public school system and to really only be focusing on a particular set of parents who are who don't who frankly do not want um, marginalized populations to have a place or have a voice or have any power in our society in the first place so this particular set of parents and you know in running with that yeah, man, it's dangerous stuff and it's important to see how this all connects. And it's important to see that the, the CRT stuff was was purposely vague, that they purposely couldn't really define it because if you don't define it, then you could go ahead and apply it to anything. And then obviously woke, same thing. Like if you don't give a clear definition, you could go ahead and just apply that to anything to suit your needs. And then here, um, parental rights and this idea of like blocking um, education, like the in the, in this, piece here one of the one of the folks behind this says that like he doesn't want to it, that the proposed ban includes all grade levels because he doesn't want to set an quote-unquote arbitrary target it's not personally for me uh, a third fifth or eighth or 11th 10th 12th grade issue it's just not having any of that instruction at all like keeping it vague keeping it open allows somebody to go ahead and utilize this for whatever nefarious purpose that they want. So like all of that is part of the strategy here from folks uh, on the right who want to go ahead and attack schools and attack the perspectives of marginalized peoples. So it's like very important to see that in this parental rights and this school choice stuff. Like school choice is not, it's not about a family having the, the ability to choose which school they send their kids to. It's really about schools having... The ability to choose which students they accept because obviously like a school of you know of 1000 um they're not going to just take anybody because if they're a quote-unquote high quality school whatever a school that is in high demand like they're going to pick and choose and take the cream of the crop the you know whatever private school they're not just going to take um you know kids with ieps they're not going to take kids with uh whatever like they're just not going to do that so um you know this isn't really about parents choosing anything it's about taking taxpayer money to fund um particular educational programming that is not For everybody, that's certainly not for marginalized populations, and get away with it under the guise of like, oh, doing what parents want. And always, when we're talking about parents' rights, not we, always when they, you know, lean on this. Concept of parents' rights—they're not talking about marginalized parents at all. Like they're just not. So I'm sure the the folks who authored this bill, they weren't like in like black neighborhoods in Texas talking to them about it and hearing from parents. Uh, Certainly, the authors of all the bills that targeted um, what they construed as CRT, like they weren't hearing from from uh, parents of color. Like they weren't going into um, you know. uh, whatever uh neighborhood that's predominantly black and brown and asking those parents like oh do you think kids should learn about um should learn about Roberto Clemente like didn't a Roberto Clemente book get banned like it's just like ridiculous like they're not talking about all parents they're talking about white conservative parents particularly and yeah it's just a mess man and it's it's a vague mess on purpose and that's one reason why this is all so dangerous
1: yeah I, I think you're spot on there Manuel and um, a, a component of this bill that I think also has to be named is there's a bunch of provisions in it that, under again the guise of parental rights, are essentially setting districts up to be inundated and buried in uh in like paperwork requests, right? So, basically, this bill says like parents have a right to know everything and to submit requests to the board of trustees, which is like sort of like the school boards um, of the district to receive all this information. And you have to give the information if even one parent requests. And of course, it sounds reasonable, right? Because why should the school district be keeping secrets from parents, right? But what this is is empowering the nuttiest of the right-wing folks to be like, I don't want my yep. child to learn about no Puerto Rican baseball player. I wanna know everything that's being taught in fourth grade in all the schools in this district and having to produce massive amounts of paperwork for public review and scrutiny, defend all of that. Like, think of the time, energy, legal fees, right? Wasted time at school board meetings that's gonna come from this. And the chilling effect that that's going to have is we ain't talking about anything controversial. We're doing George Washington and, you know, (laughs) like Eleanor Roosevelt and all the white people that everyone agrees we should talk about. And that's it. Right. And nothing else. And so that's the the goal here. Right. Um, And it's very like, hey, man, they're clever. They're crafty. Uh, you know, like in in their their you know political maneuvering here to do this sort of thing, but it it is as you said very clearly not written for us, right? They're not trying to send eight thousand dollars a year per kid to some conservative Muslim high school, right? <laughs> like some school that's got not, women right. walking around in burkas or whatever, right? Like they they're not trying to do that. This is for conservative, white supremacist leaning. Christian folks. Right. Um, And this is for the sort of right wing political enterprise of whitewashing, you know, the the curriculum, the content of curriculum in schools. So um, also, Manuel, I want to point out, they they talk about sort of transparency with regard to the mental health um, of students as well, um, which is. Really interesting, and I think this is this is a core component of why many LGBTQ organizations are, you know, are are feeling uh you know very upset about this uh proposed legislation because it it's setting up things uh which can be very, very uh harmful to LGBTQ youth, particularly I would say at the high school level or at the secondary level who are, you know, kind of coming into adolescence and and those kinds of identity conversations more, you know, more frequently. Um, but basically it's saying like the district can't keep anything private from parents. So if I'm a 15, 16-year-old and I'm confiding something to my counselor at school, right? Like there is no confidentiality around, you know, I think I might like whatever type of person that has the, you know, the same gender as I do or that sort of thing or I think I might be, you know, trans or non-binary or something, right? And and trying to remove any concept of confidentiality for kids to speak about these, you know, sorts of things. And honestly, man, like, we can have the argument about whether that's, you know, within parents' rights or not, but it's certainly not something that this conservative Texas legislature is doing, in the, you know, with any regard for the welfare and well-being um of LGBTQ youth. It also, I might add, could very well have like real harmful effects on young people who are in like problematic and abusive situations at home. Um, because my understanding is they do have like other provisions in other Texas law that says like if you if you are afraid that the child might be in an abusive situation, then you then you can keep things confidential. But this is setting up a policy. You know, uh, confrontation here with a, you know, with a law that's going to get tons of media attention and say, like, well, you can't keep anything private, you know, from the parents. So imagine a kid who's being abused, you know, at home and confides something about that, you know, at school. And now those records have to be made public to the family and the family knows that the kid has, you know, told someone else about the abuse. Right. And what kind of violent or otherwise you know, a treatment might come towards that child because of this sort of thing, right? So it this problematic on a whole bunch of levels, man. And no regard, as you said, for the welfare of marginalized youth and communities.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's never been safe to be trans. It's never been safe to be openly queer. Um, but it, it just feels like for a young person today, and especially in, in some particular states or some particular regions like... It's especially dangerous times, like especially, especially troubling times. Like I, you know, just even just the discussion around all these bills and just all the the whole uh, media infrastructure around it, and and cable news networks and social media and all that stuff. It's just like, you know, not everybody out there can see all that and absorb all that, and and responsibly respond to, to whatever, like, you know, I'm there's all kinds of, all kinds of folks out there that, that'll get whipped up into arms thinking that teachers are purposely doing this stuff or that like these schools are trying to harbor, harbor kids who need to be saved from their, from their gay parents. And like, you know, there's, there's dangerous, dangerous folks out there. We've seen it multiple times before, um, vicious attacks on trans folks, on queer folks, from folks who just got, you know, whipped up into a frenzy, not just, but folks who were pushed over the edge into a frenzy based on all this rhetoric that's coming out from our leaders. And it's just so, so dangerous right now. And I just feel for especially our young people, especially our school our, our students who are trying to navigate this, who are seeing all this happening and knowing that they are the targets. You know, there's so few, just statistically, so few like openly trans students in the school system. And to know that all, like so much is being done to target you, like to target you, it's just, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be like a 13 year old and knowing that, you know, these laws and these discussions are happening. And I'm the only kid at my school who um, identifies as trans and it's me, it's me they're talking about. It's just, that's so dangerous, man. Even like walking home from school, you know, after school, just thinking like so many folks are drawn me out, me to be like some kind of enemy, some kind of, oh man, I just, it's hard to articulate this, but I'm just, I just feel so, so, so much for those kids. And definitely everybody out there in the AOTA family who works with young people, regardless of how they identify or how you think they might identify, like just a reminder, man, just like hold space for them. And please make sure your, your classroom, your school is safe and humanizing and loving towards all students. Because who knows, who knows? what they're they're dealing with as they sit back and see these attacks on, on their humanity. It's just such such a catastrophe right now, the direction that um, all this rhetoric has taken. And again, it's never been safe. And it's never like, it's not like these areas were ever like open and welcoming. But it's like, it's just especially, it just seems especially dangerous right now, um, the way this is all trending.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, 100%, man. And last thing I'll say is just, uh, getting back to the point we made at the at the beginning about you know why we talk about these things on on the show, and uh, this is not going to stay in Texas in the same way it hasn't stayed in Florida, right? Uh, for those who don't know, Texas and Florida are two of the big two of the major players in terms of what kind of curriculum gets built nationally in this country. There are effectively four states that overwhelmingly dominate the landscape of what curriculum gets built because it's cheaper for textbook companies to make a a limited set of materials that they can then just like add a chapter on Mississippi history or whatever to it and, and it'll get adopted in their state. And those states are California, Texas, Florida, and New York, right? And so the largest, you know, states by population and the states that uh, you know, that really govern the curriculum landscape in many ways. And so half of those states have completely oppressive <laughs> laws on the books in terms of, you know, what they are, the messages they're sending to curriculum developers. So you might feel safe in Massachusetts. You might feel safe in, in Washington State or Oregon or, you know, solidly blue places across the country or however you think about it. But this, this is... This is going to come home to affect all of us um, in, a, in a textbook, in an online you know, piece of curriculum near you uh, very soon. And so we have to pay attention to these things, man. We, we have to speak truth about these things in our local context and support efforts to do so everywhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. We're all connected in this. We are all connected in this. And definitely going to chat next week with Lorena Herman about it because she has an educator in Florida. um, Definitely going to get her perspective about how like folks outside of Florida um, should still care, should uh, still, um, you know, be paying attention because none of us are none of us are completely um, free and in the right. I mean, you know, we record this show here in Los Angeles, man, and I'm over here. You know, thinking about scenes that I saw at a school board meeting in Temecula, which is not far from Los Angeles. We're talking like I don't know, depending on what part of Los Angeles you live in. Temecula is like maybe an hour, uh, an hour out, maybe less. And you know, wine country and and um, you know, they had a board meeting this week, and that's one of the California districts that banned CRT, or at least the school board issued a ban on CRT. And they had some you know some meeting where a lot of folks showed up, and it was just ugly, ugly scenes, man. I saw a scene of um a grown man, a a grown white man in his 60s, it looked like maybe 50s, in the face of a little kid, a little black kid, like just shouting them down and just, you know, another uh, person had to step in and and get, you know, get in between them. It's just like ugly, ugly stuff. And that's right here, not just California, that's like Really close to Los Angeles, so you know, so nobody is safe. This is not. This is not some old like, oh, glad I'm not in Texas, or oh, those Florida folks. That's for them. Like, nah, man, we are all mm-hmm. together in this. And there's, I don't think one one area, one region in the United States where there aren't pockets. Um, at least pockets of, of hate. And in reality, those pockets are more, um, they're more than just pockets, man. It's a little bit here, a little bit there, and it could feel overwhelming for sure, but there are more, I believe, there are more people on the side of justice, more people on the right side of, of these issues. There are more people who are about love and humanity and community than there are um, bigots and racists and hateful folks out there. So as long as we remember that we are not alone in this, not just us, ALTA family, Um, And not just educators generally, but just like as people in the society, like there are more good folks, I believe, than there are um, these really loud, vicious and wrong folks. So just got to keep holding tight to each other and keep standing up for each other and keep remembering that we're all connected. Like everybody's humanity is connected. Like you may not be black and brown. You may not be queer, but like we're all connected what happened what happens to black folks is it hurts everybody what happens to queer folks it hurts it and impacts everybody like anyways all right off my soapbox um UCLA lost. So there's no, no sports to watch. There's no nothing, Jeff. It's all, it's all a wrap. So everybody just sit in silence until next week. <laughs> sit in silence until next week for another full episode of AOTA Show. Anything else before we get out of here, Jeff?
1: Well, contrary to your UCLA-centric view of the world, I will say the Elite Eight is about to be dope this year on the men's side because there's no number one seeds left and uh and honestly, even most of the number two seeds are gone, so it's it is or half of the number two seeds are gone at least so i I think it's fast forward man, we got FAU in the mix, we got Kansas State in the mix, you know, we got Creighton in the mix. My bracket is busted. I had UCLA and Marquette in the championship which I feel like a couple of bounces of the ball in a different direction, and I could have been right. But, uh, you know, it it happens every year. Who am I kidding? Um, But I'm excited for it, man. So, yeah, I I had the Bruins winning the whole thing, man. I had your Bruins winning the championship. So if I could still watch, you should be able to still watch.
0: No, you're right. And, you know, UCLA lost two starters. So it was like, you know, realistically, what what was UCLA going to be able to do without, you know, the Pac-12 player, the defensive player of the year and the Pac-12 rookie player of the year, both out injured? No, I hear you. I hear you. But I think everybody's brackets this year. Uh, I don't know if it's the transfer portal. I don't know if it's the fact that a lot of folks are finding other other routes to professional basketball that don't include going to college. Um, But, yeah, I think this is uh Uh. The most unpredictable and messiest uh, college um, March Madness bracket, I think, in my memory. Because, you know, you just, you don't really know who's where anywhere. Right? Anyways, but yeah, you know. And UCLA women's, uh, they're playing right now, or about to play right now against um, South Carolina. So, like, South Carolina, I know they're they're beasts. Yeah, they're number one. Rat, so, yeah. I don't it's know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have faith, man. Yeah, Maybe nah, by the time we edit this and, and post it out there, you never know. <laughs> All right. I, I love y'all brewing ladies, man. Just do, you know, I, you hope, can do they, it. I hope they prove me it. wrong,
1: but I'm not going to bet on that one.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dawn
1: Staley's yeah. crew is no joke,
0: man. No joke. No joke for sure. But you know, brewing women, I believe in you. You could do this. Uh, this, the, the, the game will be done by the time this thing posts. So I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. All right, folks. That was Passing Period for this week. We'll be back next week with episode 100 featuring Lorena Herman to discuss how the politics and current situation in Florida impacts us all in this world where we are trying to build a more humanizing just education system for everybody so you don't want to miss that and definitely Show.com for all the previous episodes and ways to support us i do want to say it's been a while since like we've reminded folks to like leave a review so you know if you haven't left a review before For our show, we would very, very much appreciate it if you did that. If you listen to us on Spotify, you could do a little five-star thing. If you um, listen to us via Apple um, podcast, definitely like a a little written review, even if it's just one line, even if it's just like, oh, super dope show. We appreciate it. You know, we would love that. That would go a long way to helping us out, really. So definitely do that if you haven't yet. All right, folks. So shout out to all of y'all. Remember, we love y'all. And now it's time for you to go ahead and get to class.